I am a mythical Pandora, sent here to judge the universe. Do you have any idea what the weapon is? It could very well be a planet killer. I would really like to go on this mission, Admiral. Imagine having the power to annihilate entire worlds, and even the stars themselves. Humanity is worth saving. What have you done? Pandora. New episodes premiere October 4th, free next day, only on the CW app. New episodes of the hit sci-fi TV series Pandora returns to the CW starting Sunday, October 4th, and are available anytime on demand through the CW app. This sci-fi adventure show stars Priscilla Quintana and Oliver Dench as operatives for the Earthcom Intelligence Service, who stand between our universe and total annihilation. And you can find out more about the show on Unboxing Pandora, available weekly to get the behind-the-scenes story on the making of the show with special guests from the cast and crew, as well as podcast commentaries for the new episodes. Available now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, Darren, I'm watching the best show on television. You want to know what it is? What is it? I think I know, but what is it? Inglorious Trexperts. <laughs> yeah, and you're thinking to yourself, that's wait a second, that's not say. a TV show. It's but, not it a t- is. but it is. It, it is. is. It's a TV show because you can watch us on the Electric Now app. It's an app for streaming video podcasts as well as movies, television, and more. You can see us on demand on Electric Now. I demand it. I demand because I demand it. <laughs> Commodore Stone can watch us on the Electric Now app. And how do you get the Electric Now app? Because apparently people are having trouble understanding the concept. Just go to your app store from whatever device you're using or all of the devices you're using. And you download it to your phone, your iPad, your Roku, your whatever, whatever you, whatever you, whatever you have that streams other than a Viewmaster. You download it and, and then you watch it 100% free. There's no charge, yeah. there's no Patreon, there's no Electronic Frontier. All there is is a free app. So download the Electric Now app from your favorite app store and watch us on Electric Now. You must learn to listen to the Rebel and the Rogue or you will not be allowed to come with me to Alderaan. If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history, Nobody Does It Better, available now in hardcover, audio, and digital, wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. Hey, this is Mark K. Altman. And this is Darren Doctorman, and we are the Inglorious... Inglorious Trexperts. Yes. That's what we are. And we uh, are. welcome to another episode. Uh, and we are really, really fun. We got uh, two returning guests. Uh, Ashley Miller, uh, the writer of Thor and X-Men First Class, is back. And uh, a regular on the show. Uh, it's good to see Ashley out there in space. It's very cold out there in space. 
It is. And, uh, there's and, a lot of revenge being served out here, so it's delicious. It's a dish best served cold. Much like my Postmates the other day. Three hours. Three <laughs> hours. Okay. So, anyway, enough about about that. Uh, I must say, I, I've subsequently switched to DoorDash, and it's much quicker. So, uh, I'm, I'm now uh, I'm done with Postmates. More importantly than that, far more importantly, is our next guest. He was on the show a couple of weeks ago. He's back. Um, we have some unfinished business um, to discuss um, a film that has become a classic of the Star Trek movie series, beloved by so many. And uh, not only is our next guest a showrunner, executive producer on, on Voyager, Enterprise, uh, The Orville, um, Salem, uh, Threshold. I mean, I can name a, a ton, ton of shows. Uh, he, he was a writer and uh, EP on um, 24. But for today, we're following up on his hit film, Generations. We talked about it last year for the 25th anniversary. Now we're back to discuss First Contact. Imagine a race of beings possessed of one mind, driven by one will, intent on one purpose, to seize our past and control our future. Set a course for Earth. Maximum warp. Now, one captain against orders. Red alert! All hands to battle stations! Must succeed where all others have failed. It looks like the control deck's 26 up to 11. They have assimilated more than half the ship. Surrender yourself or we will destroy your ship. The line must be drawn here. On November 22nd, resistance is futile. Star Trek First Contact. And uh, we'd like to welcome back uh, Brandon Braga. Brandon, welcome back. Hey, guys. Welcome Good back. Good to see you. Only human contact that I have. <laughs> First <laughs> <So> contact. <laughs> we're back on Zoom. And unfortunately, and, uh, we're, we're missing the center square, Paul Lind. Yes. We, we, we are. We're missing Paul Lind, but uh, we'll, we'll carry on. Um, did we? And we talked about Richard Dawson last time in The Kissing. We did. We did. We did. And... Uh, th- Kissing Richard, that sounds like a movie. Kissing Richard Dawson. <laughs> kissing, kissing Richard. And, and there have been a whole new bunch of outrages since last we spoke. I can't even keep track of what Twitter is upset about this week, nor do I really care. So, uh, but we are we're here to talk about something that everybody loves. Um, and, you know, I, the best place to really pick up is, uh, at least for, for you, Brandon, Generations Opens. And, you know, as you told us, Everyone and their mother had an opinion about Generations when you were writing it, uh, about what should be in it, who should be in it, what should happen. Uh, the movie comes out. It's a big success. And now you guys are tasked with writing the next one. It's a very different situation now. You have a hit movie under your belt, blank slate ahead. Nobody's forcing you to put uh, original cast members in it, Next Generation standing on his own two feet. Uh, although Shatner did go and pitch The Return, as uh, his sequel to Ashes of Eden, uh, saying that that should be the follow-up. 
which didn't get much of any traction. Uh, so I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He did. And uh, but tell us, uh, you know, tell us what you know. Obviously, basking in the glow. I mean, you would in the success of Star Trek, you had written a couple of scripts that hadn't gotten produced. Um, you know, you've gotten some big, you know, some nice deals. Um, but now you have your, you know, you, you've done the red carpet, the grosses are in, uh, you know, all the battles are in the past because, you know, you're, you're basically um, vindicated because the movie is a, is a big success uh, and very profitable. So tell us about the beginning of this first contact process. You know, how you found out you were doing another one, you know, what your feelings were uh, about, uh, you know, sort of moving forward and whether you even wanted to do it again after sort of everything you went through on the first film. Well, yeah, the first film was, had its fun moments for sure, but it was also pretty challenging. Um, it was critically, I'd say mixed, but a huge box office success. And, I don't remember the exact timing, but it seemed like we just released that movie when Rick Berman called Ron Moore and I to say they wanted, you want to do another one of these things. And I was thrilled because um, I wanted to do another movie. I wanted to do another one. And I was excited at the prospect of doing a, a, a pure next generation film that was all theirs that captured their, the spirit of, that crew alone. Um, and so we were very excited about it. And you decided early on that it was going to be time travel, right? That's something you guys sort of seized on very early in the process. I think Ron and I sat in Rick's office and um, started throwing ideas out. The first idea was, were, was the Borg. Assimilate this. That was, Ron and I were pretty keen on the Borg. The Borg hadn't really been done since Best of Both Worlds, one and two. They were still, you know, kind of mysterious, scary villains. And we decided um, that they would be the villains. And, and Rick had uh, time travel on his mind. And we went through several permutations of what the time travel would be including the Renaissance era. And that was a very short lived idea. Um, we just thought it was cool. Like what would the Borg be doing in the past? You know, in, in that, the anachronistic nature of it was fun. Mm. Now the irony is we would end up going into the future for the audience, but the past for our character. So it was, um, which I thought was really interesting. And I don't remember exactly how we landed. We came up with a couple of things and rejected it. The, the, the Renaissancean kind of thing was uh, rejected because it just was going to be a little cheesy. And Patrick, I think, got wind of the idea through Rick. And he's like, I'm not wearing tights. Um, <laughs> um, so that's a quote I think is well circulated. But it's, it's true. He did say that. Um, and, uh, you know, I just remember being in Rick's office with Ron. I remember strolling around the Paramount lot with Ron talking about um, what the near future and uh, 
maybe seeing the birth of Star Trek, mm-hmm. maybe designing a film that could be enjoyed by everybody because it's about the birth of Star Trek and it's about what it's, you know, I remember talking about Zephram Cochran and that whole thing. And I remember thinking, well, what if, you know, what if you go back to the past and it's never really what you think it's going to be like. And what if he's just a complete asshole, a drunken asshole who has no, whose motivations had nothing to do with what you thought they were initially. And there's something just was fascinating to me about, about that character. Um, And it was a very smooth development process. It was, I, I, I felt very liberated. Well, let me, it was just Ron, me and Rick, that's it. And we were able to, you know, fashion a story. Now the first draft that we scripted was all wrong, but. Wrong in what way? Well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, We had this whole story with, uh, the basic elements were there. Like the first, the first challenge of the script, once we kind of nailed the time travel on the board was, what are we going to do? And it might've been Jonathan Dolgen, who was one of the big wigs at Paramount, who we had a meeting with. And we were kind of pitching him the story. And he expressed some concerns about, well, the Borg, why are these villains? What do they do? They're zombies? And I, I think he kind of made us go back and fashion the board queen because we realized, oh yeah, they're just, they're not villains, really. I mean, after a while, they're great villains, but we needed to personify them somehow. Right. Because without because the queen, without the queen they're just... locusts, basically. Yeah, or zombies, zombies who yeah. who assimilate you. I mean, they're great, but after like. And I, I don't know if the Borg Queen was in the first rap that we wrote. Are you ready? Who are you? I am the Borg. That is a contradiction. The Borg have a collective consciousness. There are no individuals. I am the beginning, the end. The one who is many. So then how did you approach the kind of the interaction with the board? Like, was there, I mean, how did that, obviously, you know, the way that she, that she deals with data, the way that she deals with the card is, is uh, kind of at the, the heart of that film, at least in the, the stuff that's taking place on the enterprise. So, so how did that play without that presence, without that voice? And did it so solve first, problems at her? The first draft of the movie that we wrote had Picard on the surface of the planet. And the Lily character, the Alfie Woodard character, was a photographer. I don't remember everything, but I just remember she's a photographer. He gets involved with her. There's some kind of uprising happening down. It, just, it was this whole storyline that had... And meanwhile, on the, on the ship, Riker and the crew are battling the Borg. There's no queen. There's the deflector dish set piece, mm-hmm. but it was it was all without Picard. And I don't remember all the specifics. All I remember is it was a decent draft that was just all wrong. And Patrick Stewart read it. And 
we got summoned to his apartment in New York City to discuss to discuss the draft. And uh, I remember very vividly, he's like, why am I not on the ship battling the Borg? Like he was not, he was, he was polite, but upset. Like, and it was obvious that he was correct. Mm-hmm. And it was during that time, I believe that we invented the queen. We put uh, Riker on the surface with Troy and we refashioned the whole, we've just completely reconceived whole swaths of the script well i think we have to tell him the truth if we tell the truth the timeline Timeline. this is no time to argue about time we don't have the time what was i saying you're drunk i am not yes you are look he wouldn't even talk to me unless i had a drink with him and then it took three shots of something called tequila just to find out he was the one we're looking for and I've spent the last 20 minutes trying to keep his hands off me. So don't go criticizing my counseling technique. Sorry. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. You're blended already. I already told him our cover story. He didn't believe me. We are running out of time. Now, if we tell him the truth, do you think he'll be able to handle it? If you're looking for my professional opinion as ship's counselor, he's nuts. I'll be sure to note that in my log. And I suddenly felt, oh yeah, now it's working. Now, an interesting side note, which I'm, I don't know if you've talked about before, is that Mad Magazine did a parody of First Contact, but they based it on that first draft. Uh-huh. So. Uh, and I'm like, oh, okay. So they get early drafts, and in order to get their parody out when the movie's out, they get, they get, it, they base it on script, and on who they know has been cast. And if you look at the Mad Magazine, it's a completely different plot with this photographer lady drawn as Alfred. Wood. It's a, it's a different movie, wow. and that's the first draft. If anyone ever wants to read the first draft, <laughs> read Mad. People are frantically checking their closets right now. It's that would be me, actually. I w- you know, it was a dream come true. Two things happened with that movie. We got reviewed a, a thumbs up review from Siskel and Ebert, which was a dream of mine. Uh, and we were in Mad Magazine. The problem is they parodied the wrong movie. <laughs> Doesn't that kind of make it just a little bit better? It's an interesting art. Of, it's like I, and then I wonder how often that, how often that must have happened in other cases, you know. Right. James, so, they need the lead time. So, let me ask you this, because um, it's been suggested, perhaps even on this show, that uh, Zephram Cochran is a thinly veiled Gene Roddenberry, and I wonder if that was something you were cognizant of, that was ever something that was discussed, or is once. that just never once, hmm. never once. No, as you can see, why somebody uh, would draw the analogy. I've never heard that. Mm, interesting. I can see why. I can see why. In some, um, but no, 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 never okay. once. Not, not from me or anything that I heard. Sure. Um, let me ask you this then. Obviously, I think the Queen, uh, in many ways, taps into so many things that are of personal interest to you. Sort of that Cronenberg esque body horror. Hellraiser, the Clive Barker of it all, you know, the Cenobites. Was, was that, it really seems to 
to, to bear your signature? How much of um, conceiving of the queen and it being sort of this, you know, uh, creature that's assembled and wired into the, um, the engines and all that, you know, is sort of Brandon Braga-esque or, you I know. Can't, I can't take credit specifically for anything because I can't remember. Sure. I do, I do remember, cons I probably was, I recall being very passionate about the way she would have an entrance uh, as a disembodied head. Um, because I was obsessed with this movie growing up called The, the Thing That Wouldn't Die. Mm -hmm. uh, is that what it's called? With the, there's a woman who has a car accident. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Her head gets put on a table and it's connected to stuff. Yep. Yep. I even had that image commissioned. Uh, I commissioned an artist to paint that. I, I, don't, I wish I had it with me. I, I could show you. But <laughs> I have a little painting of that head. I was obsessed with it. It scared the shit out of me. I used to wake up in the middle of the night and think I saw her head sitting on the dresser in the darkness. <laughs> so I had this weird concept that the board queen would appear as a floating like that lady and come and, and be put into a torso and be assembled. And I remember ILM did those effects and, uh, and that was pretty groundbreaking. I mean, there was just, you know, how do we get Alice Krieg and, and they, they, you know, now they would do it differently, but they put Alice up on a, on a brain that was lowered with green screen, like they would just put a face on it. It would all be CG today. So it was, it was kind of a combination of CG and live action. And I remember when the trailer was cut together, the first trailer, uh, we watched it with Terry Lansing, who was the head of Paramount at the time, yeah wonderful lady and um and they had that image of the queen appearing and i'm like you i dared to speak up and say you're giving that away like and she's and she said honey what we want people in, in the seats yep seeing that is going to make them want to to come see the movie it doesn't matter and she was i'm like oh yeah i think she knows what she's doing yeah <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, the Queen was a real breakthrough for us um, conceptually. Uh, the Borg, you know, and I had some pet peeves about like I thought the Borg, um, Todd Masters, and um, kind of redesign. We redesigned the Borg with the movie budget. Mm -hmm. there was, I had a couple of pet peeves like the Borg. There, there are moments in the movie, in the movie, at least at the time, where they were very scary, and then they're. And I don't know whether to blame Frakes or the assistant directors that oftentimes you see, you see Borgs doing this. And I'm like, mm. Borgs don't push buttons. Mm -hmm. Those mm -hmm. are the accountant Borgs. Borg. They're, they're swiping right. They're just, it's Borg. Things. They shouldn't be tapping. Yeah. Mm. There's a couple instances where you see that and, and that always bothered me. I just have to get that off my chest. <laughs> now, speaking of the, the Borg queen, Originally, Angelica Houston had been considered for that role, but you know, I guess you guys felt it was too similar to Captain EO. Um, I don't know. I mean, we certainly spoke of her as an archetype. Um, I, I don't know if she was ever approached. I don't know if she came in and read for the role. I don't know. She might have. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if she. I don't see. Uh, Captain EO, as she's kind of a Borg Queen esque yeah. thing. Um, and maybe that's why we referred to her. I don't know that she ever actually was considered. Mm. Um, 
I do. Alice Krieger is amazing in the yeah. role. I mean, obviously and, and she's look, Alice was. I mean, I think we might have we talked about different actors. Uh, who who played Tina Turner? Oh, um, was it um, in in what does love have to do with yeah. it? Um, yeah. It's uh, Angela uh, Bassett. It was Angela an Angela Bassett. Bassett. Yeah, we talked yeah. about her because that movie had come out, and she she's a huge Star Trek fan. I'm mm. um, sorry, I like. I popped on again and I got to hide myself because it's too hard. Um, <laughs> you know, there were a lot of actresses that we thought about, but Alice might have been in part my idea because I thought we knew we wanted this character to be creepy, sexy. And I remember in the movie Ghost Story, sure, without question, the best thing about that movie was Alice. <laughs> who was creepy sexy and it's kind of like not an easy thing to do right and it's she just seemed perfect yeah and then you used her again in voyager eventually eventually yeah yeah she was great i mean she's really great she did a great job I and thought, yeah so once you sort of realized that uh picard was going to be on the ship uh, and then Riker was going to be on the planet. How hard was it to sort of, I mean, you sort of had the AB story going like in an episode. How hard was it to figure out what you wanted to do on the planet? Well, there were three stories, right? You got Data and the Queen. Yeah, right. And you got Riker and Cochran and Troy and Jordy. And you have Picard and, and the rest of the gang on the ship. And it right. was a, a three-pronged structure. And it just, it wasn't hard. I mean, it it was a pleasure to write. They're on the move again. The Borg just overran three of our defense checkpoints. They've taken over decks five and six. They've adapted every modulation of our weapons. It's like we're shooting blanks. We have to work on finding another way to modify our weapons so they'll be more effective. In the meantime, tell your men to stand their ground. Sir. Fight hand to hand if they have to. Aye, sir. Wait. Captain, our weapons are useless. We must activate the auto-destruct sequence and use the escape pods to evacuate the ship. No! Jean-Luc, if we destroy the ship, we destroy the Borg. We gotta stay and fight. Sir, we have lost the Enterprise. We should not sacrifice- We have not lost the Enterprise, Mr. Wolf. We are not going to lose the Enterprise. Not to the Borg, not while I'm in command. You have your orders. I must object to this course of action. The objection is, is noted. With all due respect, sir, I believe you are allowing your personal experience with the board to influence your judgment. You're afraid. You want to destroy the ship and run away, you coward. John Luke. If you were any other man, I would kill you where you stand. Get off my bridge. I think Ron and I went, he, Ron had a cabin up in the woods in the mountains, um, can't remember where, where we, we would go to write. And we wrote a lot of First Contact there. Um, uh, it wasn't Big Bear, but some other place. Uh, but I, re I have fond memories of, of writing that. What was your process when you collaborate? Do you work on it writing together? Do yeah. you? That's you do. my process in any collaboration. 
I don't see the value in going off and writing stuff and coming together. To me, the benefit of collaborating directly is that you're sitting in a room and you're not alone. Right. You get to bounce off live and bouncing on. on. <laughs> have like it's and with Ron, I would type I, in all my collaborations. I, I don't know why it might, might be a control thing. I like to talk to be the one typing, but um, you know, unlike the Borg, who don't type dialogue, he would no, you know, rattle off dialogue, and, and it was it was great. It was a lot of fun, particularly those scenes with the Queen, being able to articulate, try to figure out what what if the Borg could talk, what would they think? And I I think they think they were perfect. Right. They're at, or they're they're striving for perfection. I thought it was just a fascinating, you know, and that she would be interested in data as a unique, very one of a kind organism, at least until Discovery came out. Yeah. Yeah. So, so other than just kind of the, I guess there was lore, but she's she would be fascinated by this creature. So it was a good dynamic. That storyline to me. It all, they were all fun for their own reasons. How much did you have to really focus on opening it up? Because, you know, after all these years, you're conditioned to write for television, right? And even with Generations, you lost so much you wanted to do because of budget. With First Contact, was there a sense like, we need to make this bigger, we need to make this cinematic? Obviously, the deflector dish sequence, which is sort of a virtuoso sequence, is, is, could only be done in, in a feature yeah. film. I mean... Walking on the hull of the ship on the TV show, it, it wouldn't have even entered our consciousness. Um, I think getting stuck in a turbo lift was probably the most complicated. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, we 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 strove to be cinematic in generations, but you know, we learned a lot, and I think having the three story, each one of the stories is ambitious in its own way. Mm -hmm. Or queen and delivering her as a character and the deflector just sequence and the action and depicting the world below were all cinematic in their own ways. So what was the biggest thing you learned from the generations process? Like what did you carry from that um, into the, the writing of first contact? Because obviously writing a feature is a very different process than, than writing a television. Um, we had a budget and I remember sitting in production meetings or visual effects meetings during prep really having to slow down sequences because we didn't you know, like back back then we literally and it's to some I guess it's still true like you get a list of all the shots that the director wants to do and the visual effects team. And you look at a budget and each shot has a number next to it. And I've spent much of my Star Trek career sitting with budgets like that, with a room full of people saying, oh, we can lose this, 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 trying to get to a number. And I've become very good at doing it. Um, did it with, most recently with Cosmos. Um, so there were compromises. Like I look at the J.J. Abrams movies with great envy, because we we had we didn't even come close to having that kind of money. No. Um, but you know, writing for the analogy we used was writing for TV is 
is different than features. Features is like visiting your family uh, every uh, every couple of years at Christmas versus living with your family. So it's got to be special. You've got to take some narrative risks. And bites have to be bigger and better. Well, you can actually hire. Yeah. And you have to like, for instance, I think one thing that didn't really work in generations, but worked great in first contact was data's emotion chip. Mm-hmm. Um, I think generations, I just kind of like that, that, that doesn't go anywhere. Right. And giving him an emotion chip for those who know the character was a big deal. It's one of the things he strove for. And it's the kind of thing you want to do in a movie. Right. Right. You don't necessarily want to you know, do something that huge in TV, at least at that time. But then in Generations, the emotion chip was great. There's that great moment where he's feeling fear and he turns it off and Card says, I envy you. And the Queen activating it, as a, using it as a weapon against him. Right. Like, so it was interesting, you know, that some things carried over like that. Um, I think it was so integral to First Contact, whereas in Generations, I think it was a thing that happened. It's you know, and that it's, everything felt so organic. It didn't really pay off at all. Yeah. But I'm glad we set it up because um, it's very memorable, First Contact. Um, and I don't know. I just felt like First Contact was just, it felt organic. It felt natural. It, we were back in action. We weren't pulling your hair out with all these different voices and opinions. It was, you know, generations, I'm deeply grateful that I had that experience. And there are some things I like about the movie. And, you know, you hear people, I occasionally hear people say it's their favorite movie. I think it's because they saw it when they were 12. Mm-hmm. Like me, mm-hmm. Spy Love Me Bond movie. Like I have a, uh, David Goodman, head of the Writers Guild, we get into fierce arguments about James Bond because he's a fan, and he thinks that's the worst fucking movie he's ever seen. (laughs) What does David know? Please, (laughs) I have to have a talk with David. I'm like, well, it's my favorite. (laughs) The first one. But, uh, you know, the, the lessons we carried over, I can't, I don't know that I know them all explicitly, but I, I know we just weren't completely true to the characters. There was something about generations that felt off, that felt forced. It just felt like we were inflicting emotions on the character. It felt like we were writing from the outside in versus Mm -hmm. the inside out. How how would you compare working with Frakes to David Carson on generations? Was it a better working relationship? we We were friends and, worked together for, you know, and he directed some of my scripts on Next Generation. Yeah. Including Cause and Effect. I don't remember, uh, his first was The Offspring, maybe? Um, I don't remember what his first episode was, but Frakes Frakes is great to work with. He's fun. Carson was a little little cool. I didn't know him that well. He was a little, Mm -hmm. at least, and maybe that's just me thinking that I didn't know him. But he also I, is the British I, thing I, going. I had no relationship with David Carson really at all. But with mm-hmm. Frakes, 
you know, it was a, a real collaboration, you know, and I spent a lot of time. I mean, I, I was involved in the prep and the entire production of first contact. I was spent a great deal of time there and I spent almost no time on generations. Well, on TV, you know, obviously it's a cliche and it's true. It's not true that TV is a writer's medium. And generally people think of uh, movies as, as a director's medium, but it also is a star's medium. The, the, you know, uh, if a star has enough clout that it's their picture as much as anybody's. So I want to ask you about Patrick, uh, because you know, obviously he had opinions during the whole course of a Next Generation, but the dynamic really changes on the movies where Patrick and Brent, to a large extent, have a lot more say about what their characters will and won't do. And I do want to ask you about, you know, when Patrick brings in his own, you know, which is typical of a star on a big movie, brings in his own writer to do a punch up for himself. I mean, I imagine that that's got to be, you know, annoying uh, to be polite, uh, you know, given the relationship that you had with him and how strong the script was at that point. Well, it's interesting. There are some parallels. I was reading a, a section of your book, Nobody Does It Better. <laughs> I hear good things about that. <laughs> By uh, well, well. Mark Altman, Ed Gross, and Fred Decker. <laughs> but, uh, there's an interesting, um, I was reading a, some, some, some of the stuff, Albert, is it Albert? Broccoli or broccoli? Broccoli, broccoli. Like, the, like the vegetable. And he sounded like Rick Berman in that he's like, look, writers just don't go off and write a James Bond movie. And they, they have to come back and we help them shape it because we're the keepers of this franchise. And I'm like, oh, this field, I get that and I like that and that's how it should be. Like there's gotta be somebody who's got Bond DNA right. who, who knows what's right and knows what's wrong with the bond. And that's the, that's the broccoli people. I'm convinced of it. They sound just like Rick, yeah. you know, and to some degree at some point myself in that, and that I, I ended up in that position. And um, so I really kind of like liked reading about that in terms of the bond franchise. Patrick had a clause in his contract, I was told, that he could bring a writer in at some point of his own. I'll get some hot water from my tea. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever told this story. Um, and I think it's a, not inappropriate to tell that. For those of you listening at home, like, Brandon has every, moved every, to get every, hot water. Every writer can relate to the story. That's why I think it's germane. It's I, I, I don't awesome. think I'm breaking any rules telling it. Hold on. No, I have to not. <laughs> Meanwhile, well, we have Patrick Stewart right here. We'll, we'll be back in a second, but first, uh, a brief message from our sponsor. Nobody does it better. The new book from Mark Altman and Ed Gross. If you like James Bond, then you'll love Nobody Does It Better. I'll be looking forward to those uh, residual checks <laughs> for the advertising. So will I. So will I. <laughs> <laughs> So what you're saying is that the line must be drawn here and uh, over no further, apparently. <laughs> uh. <laughs> 
You know, and it's, it's interesting because, of course, you know, when you think about time travel in Star Trek, it was always almost always contemporary because the 60s, Tomorrow's Yesterday, right. Simon Earth, it's all the oh, time they were shooting. Well, it was, it was always hero. a... We, we, we were talking about the, the, uh, the tendency for time travel to have taken place in contemporary times in most of Star Trek's uh, time travel. Usually for production reasons. It was for, for, so, for production and budget reasons, obviously. Uh, the same all. thing you did on Voyager with Future's, Future's End, I think, and, uh, and with the original Star Trek where they were always going to 1969 or 68. Um, so, I mean, th this was interesting because, you know, because it was rare that when Star Trek did time travel, they didn't show up in the era it was being filmed so they could use the back lot and they could actually go on location and do all the things they couldn't normally Next do. Next Gen should have gone in 1969. That would have been awesome. I mean, yeah. even Star Trek IV went to the contempt when it was being made, 1986 I, I think, or whatever. I think that uh, with First Contact isn't really a time travel story. Right. Like, it's not, it doesn't dwell on anachronistic aspects just what's important is first contact's about to happen right and the world's about to change and we have to make sure that happens the the compound where they go is fairly generic you right. know it it's not really it is i don't think of it as a time travel story right but it, that's an important element and it's very important that and i think it's really cool a little bit postmodern at the time for a for our characters to go back to a that something's their past but our future, right? Mm -hmm. um, and a post-apocalyptic future that's going to become a paradise, right? And um, and it's Star Trek history being born. And three wise Vulcans come out of the ship, and it was very very much a nativity scene in, in my mind. Mm -hmm. um, Ron and I had gotten we'd been working hard on the first contact script refining it doing notes and it was it might have even been in prep it was you know a really good we were very proud of the script but patrick brought this writer in um and i don't remember when if we knew i don't know that we knew that from the beginning i don't rick was pretty upfront about it but i don't remember we found out ron was pretty ron moore was pissed hmm. um justifiably so and i was upset about it, but I, was, you know, I, don't, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about what writer they brought in. I'm not sure what the rules are, but they brought a writer in, big screenwriter, big mainstream screenwriter at the time. Do you know who it is, Mark? Russ Lamana from uh, the Rush Hour movies, I believe. Yeah. Rush Hour, the first one had come out and was a big hit. I don't know how, where they found, I don't know him, I've never met him, he did a pass, that was uh, only the scenes with Patrick and Lily. And um, to my recollection, uh, it wasn't long before I came back and Ron and I were asked to come back, come back onto the project. And, and, you know, I don't know how much of his work was left. It might've been a line, but, uh, and Ron didn't want to come back. Ron was pissed. Mm. And, um, but he did, and then Rick got pissed and yelled at us, and it was a little tense there for a little bit. But you know, when you're, it was like Ron and I were so deeply 
entrenched in Star Trek and, and, and are writing on Star Trek up to that point, never been questioned, much less by Patrick Stewart, who we've been writing fucking Picard for years at that point, and pretty yeah. well, I might add. So we were hurt by it, sure. you know, and, and you know, took some satis- I took some satisfaction in coming back and saying, okay, so here's what you're going to pay me a week. Because you let me go, and now you have to negotiate a new contract to come back. Yeah, it's a, it's a fairly common story. Writer goes bye bye, they bring you some other Yahoo, and then they bring you back to unfuck it. Yeah, but you got to consider your emotional connection, right? Ron and I had been writing Next Generation successfully for year for right. three years at that point. So it was really weird to have to, to be told that your script was going to be worked on by a complete stranger. By an outworlder. Right. And, uh, it's not like it's Michael Pillar. It's common in movies, and that's why I'm sure Patrick felt... But it's, it's just a little like, eh. But it all turned out okay. Yeah. But when I think of Rush Hour, I think of Star Trek. The whole you? time throughout, through all the way through post-production, there were no... Because Rush Hour and Star Trek, they just go together, man. I just see that connection. It's right there. Well, Nothing like you know, a- Chris Tucker, Jackie Chan, that dynamic was very similar to the uh, dynamic between Lily Sloan and Captain Picard. I'm sure... I don't know this Ross guy. I'm sure he's a really talented guy. I think, you know, looking back, and I'm only guessing, but I can see how someone of Patrick's stature and talent looked at me and Ron, these guys in their 20s, and, and wondered, is there anyone, is there a, a more mature writer out there? Like, I, I, I can understand right. maybe if that's what he was thinking, because we were pretty young, right. you know? Um, but uh, it all worked out okay. You know, he's also, you gotta look at from the actor's perspective. Actors are extremely neurotic, and he's thinking, if this movie doesn't work, I don't have a feature career. And I'm of a certain age and I'm associated with this role and I'm done. You know, uh, I mean, at that point he, he didn't even have X-Men yet. So um, there's a certain, you know, nerve wracking that goes in because every choice they make, every decision they make, it, it could be the last choice they get to make. Yeah. Um, so a, some, it, it turned out to be a great that that happened because uh, um, I, I went back. Somehow it brought, made me even more, involved with the movie. They mm-hmm. struck you down and you became far more powerful than they could possibly imagine. Yeah, exactly. Um, so so you, so you were involved with obviously production, you went on location, you were in post. I mean, and that must be nice because obviously you don't feel like you're giving up the baby, you know, and, I and a lot on that movie. I mean I was really involved and um it was a lot of fun. And at had you had become you weren't a showrunner yet you were like a co-ep on voyager at that point it wasn't until after this so after the when first contact came out it was a smashing success um it was number one for for one week (laughs) (laughs) then 101 dalmatians came out and knocked it off but it made a it made it was hugely successful and critically successful yes 
and I was going I was approached to write the next one. And, um, and Rick was even offered to make me a, a producer on it. Cause I think I'd earned it on first contact. And, uh, I was simultaneously given the reins of Voyager. And I regret this decision. I think I made a mistake. Mm -hmm. I didn't think I could do both. I didn't think that I could run my first show and do the movie at, at the same time. I, I was nervous about it. and I wanted to do the movie um, and Rick and I talked about some ideas but I just it was hard Rick was mad really pissed at me Sherry Lansing was mad at me mm. um, I'm sure and I, I wish I'd done it one of my career regrets is not um, doing the next movie I was just I was primed to do it and I just, I, I, I decided to focus on Voyager. I mean, and I don't regret that because I really wanted to do a good job. Is there anything, you, is there anything that you two, uh, uh, you and uh, Ron Moore, um, wanted to put into uh, First Contact that didn't make it for some reason or uh, ideas that you thought would be interesting that just didn't really gel? You know, Gosh, I get asked that question a lot in different contexts. And I, my answer is always like, if it was a good idea, we used it. Like, mm. it's not. I, my philosophy is always, like, I hate talking about, hey, we'll save it. it, it here's what we'll do next season. Right. No, we're using everything right now. Right. And I don't remember there being any thing in there. No. It was all stuff that we... It's, it's, it was the opposite. Mm. Like we added stuff. We added stuff. Like for instance, it was obvious that we needed more Borg scary stuff. So that whole montage where the Borg have lasers in the darkness and seeing Borgification of people right. was was added later. Yeah, reshoots. It just felt like it wasn't. It needed some more gusto and stuff like that, but I don't. I don't think there was anything we felt liked but didn't pursue. How difficult is it to um, weave in? You know, obviously the studio wants to go beyond the cult, as they call it. You know, beyond the Star Trek fans. So, how challenging is it for you to sort of make it accessible beyond the Star Trek fans? Like when you do something like the as simple as the holodeck. I think people know what a holodeck even is. You know. Um, is that a challenge or you just don't worry about that? In this case of this movie, we had the Lily character as our point of view character. And there's your answer. Yeah, sure. She's the audience surrogate now. She's the, audi the, the, she's the audience. Yeah. There's a speech in there that would end up, there are a couple of little speeches in there that you, know, you can never predict that things are going to look like. There's the Picards, this line, no this far, no, no farther. The line must be drawn here. This one. far, no further. And that's that's the one. Which is it's okay further because it should be farther grammatically. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the Borg hurt you, and now you're going to hurt them back. In my century, we don't succumb to revenge. We have a more evolved sensibility. Bullshit! I saw the look on your face when you shot those Borg on the holodeck. You were almost enjoying it. 
Oh, come on, Captain. You're not the first man to get a thrill from murdering someone. I see it all the time. Get out! Or what? You'll kill me? Like you killed Ensign Lynch? There was no way to save him. You didn't even try. Where was your involved sensibility then? I don't have time for this. Oh, hey, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt your little quest. Captain Ahab has to go hunt his whale. What? You do have books in the 24th century. This is not about revenge. Liar! This is about saving the future of humanity! Jean-Luc, blow up the damn ship! No! No! I will not sacrifice the Enterprise. We've made too many compromises already. Too many retreats. They invade our space, and we fall back. They assimilate entire worlds, and we fall back. Not again. The line must be drawn here. This far, no farther. I will make them pay for what they've done. The, uh, that speech would become known, and then there's this, there's this speech where Picard's explaining that there's no money in the future. Right. And to Lily, and that, I, I think that's really stuck with a lot of people. And, um, and I do remember, I went to see the movie at a regular old theater with an opening weekend, just to see it with an audience. And I remember walking out, and I don't know why back then movies seemed different. We people stood in line and got excited, and when you left a movie, you everyone would be chattering about the movie. And I remember overhearing a guy saying to his wife or girlfriend, "See, I told you." And it was they were talking about how she liked the movie and didn't think she would, right? Um, because it was like a Star Trek movie. Um, yeah, ever, ever since they started assigning seats, it's all it all changed. I, mm -hmm. It did. Yeah, because there people would wait online so, for hours yeah. to get good seats. Yeah. But now they show up during the trailer or even during the oh. opening credits because their seats are reserved. And then they go home and talk about it on the internet. They don't you even had go to, to be dinner. Dedicated. You had to be dedicated to get a good seat then. Because we go out for drinks and talk about this stuff for hours. But, you know, people just go home and, you know, do it on the freaking internet. I remember standing in line for Star Trek The Voyage Home in Westwood Village mm -hmm. weekend. That line around the for blocks, and then yep. you go in, there's there's this excitement that doesn't exist now. Yes. People are fucking going nuts. Yeah. Same, I remember the Aliens. I remember all yep. these movies. And, and it's really like my movie memories, whether it's John Carpenter's Halloween or Star Trek IV, my my experience of those movies was so enhanced by the audience reaction. Mm -hmm. Enhanced. Yeah. You know, it's like in First Contact, there's a line from Data at the end of the movie where Picard, he says he was tempted by the Queen's offer to become more human. And Picard says, how long a time? And Data says, 0 0.07 second, whatever. It's a classic Data line. Mm -hmm. Very long time for an android. It didn't seem that amusing, but the 
screenings, I saw the audience erupts with laughter. It seems funnier than you know, it is, it's the, it's the catharsis of that moment between them, right? It's that it's kind of emotional honesty from data, oddly enough. And it just, it kind of perfectly encapsulates it. And I think that's why it's just, it's all that, it's all of that energy that's torn up. Everyone was thinking, that's what everyone was feeling, what you described. Right. Yeah. Right. And um, I guess this is my way of saying, I hope this pandemic doesn't fuck up movies because, um, mm -hmm. I think yeah. we're going to have something different when it comes back. And I don't know what that's going to be. watching Top Gun Maverick on my fucking TV. Man. No. Or No Time to Die. Or no right. time the to new James Bond movie. Not by by oh, Fred Decker. James Bond? <laughs> <laughs> Fred Decker. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I can't imagine I'm watching that at home. You know, it's no Trolls World Tour, but I, I you know, I got to see that in the theater. A lot of these movies you have to see in the theater. And they say, oh, it's just for the event. It'll be for the event films, the big IMAX films. But I like to see everything in a theater. I, I mean, I, even indies. Well, that's the thing. I, I saw what, I saw two, like, two movies a week. Yeah. That's my, that's, that's my thing. That's my joy in life is going to the movies. So this, mm -hmm. you know, sucks. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, I, I have to say, so it, it must have been incredibly gratifying. You talked about the fact that, you know, you turned down in, not in, it wasn't insurrection yet, but the next movie, and uh, it, it's a very interesting sliding doors moment because I wonder what would have become of the movie franchise had you. Obviously, that was sort of the turning point uh, for uh, uh, the next generation franchise. It was all downhill from there, so to speak. I don't. Um, I, don't I like as I say, I regret. Yeah. If I could go but, back in time, I would do it. It's interesting because if you look at something like Star Trek where they were building in the mythology that totally other people created in Space Seed. You know, Gene Kuhn and, you know, everyone involved with Khan had nothing to do with Space Seed. You end up later on on Enterprise building on the mythology you created, you and Ron, uh, uh, the, the Star Trek nativity scene, the arrival of the Vulcans, and use that as the fodder, and I mean that in a good way, for basically building Enterprise, you know, on the back of, you know this mythology you created for first contact yeah it's true i mean although we got a lot of criticism from fans about our depiction of vulcans on enterprise as being not vulcan like you know we decided like it would be interesting if the vulcans came and transformed our world and but they didn't trust us completely because they've seen what humans are capable of and not capable of. And they're kind of like these strict parents and we're bristling under them and we want to get out there on our own. And we thought that would be an interesting dynamic and coming off of imagining, well, what happened next after first contact? You know, how did this go down? Right. right. Is that so, like, yeah. not like we magically stopped being a-holes? Well, but people, I just remember reading online, like people were like, these aren't Vulcans, this, da, 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 da. And I'm like, well, even if they aren't quite the Vulcans you are familiar with, it's a long time ago. Cultures do change. Like the Vulcans might've been a little different with our, back then. I mean, it's just, I never understood the discomfort some people had with that. I thought it was a great idea. And, um, and then you get 
James Cromwell back for the pilot, which, you know, is it's sort of well, open a cake. Huge start huge fan of Star Trek. Um, iconic character. I mean, he was great as as Cochrane. Yes. And I, I assume you had nothing to do with picking the music for no, I don't mean Jerry Goldsmith. I mean the songs that Jerry did that no. from Cochrane is listening to. You know, I'm not a musically I don't I don't really I'm not musically inclined that was Rick and Peter a producer named Peter Lords and mm -hmm. stuff that kind of classic rock it, speaking of Jerry Goldsmith you know I, I'm not just saying this because it's a movie I worked on but that's one of his best themes agreed and it's interesting I remember when I first and I one of my magical memories is being on a scoring stage with Jerry Goldsmith while they scored this movie mm -hmm. and such a huge fan of his. And I remember being taken aback when I first heard the theme because I thought it was going to be action adventure, scary Borg. Right. He chose to go with the aspirational component. It's a, it's a hymn. It is. And it's beautiful. It absolutely. And I, I was surprised that, but he really recognized how powerful that part of the movie was. Mm -hmm. And when the theme comes back at the end, and it really only comes back at the end, yeah. when the Vulcans have landed and they shake hands, yeah. it's very moving. It's incredibly moving. It's one of the most moving parts of any Star Trek film at all. At all. It's, it's very, it, it, it takes those you know feelings that you have for, you know, years of, of watching the shows and, and all that. And it sort of, it, it focuses it down into this moment and the, the, the moment of realization of the beginning of all of this. And it's extremely emotional. Yeah. It's funny because Jerry's a guy who had no particular affinity or understanding for Star Trek in his, is what he said. And yet he seemed to understand it on a very gut level yeah. uh, because obviously the music is so brilliant and I remember that quote he had about insurrection. I have no idea what was going on in that movie. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, his music, you know, it's it's became start the music of Star Trek. Yeah. The next generation was the end credit crawl of one of the movies or something. It was the uh, it was the picture. main theme for the motion picture. Oh, for the motion picture. Yeah. Um and even more than the original series music, I think that's associated with Star Trek. Um, he, Goldsmith, if, you, if you sit and listen to Goldsmith's scores, he's, some, he's a genius. Like his, like his score for Planet of the Apes is like some kind of experimental yeah. score, but it's brilliant. And they're just, it's, every score is like, doing something new. Like yeah. he, he was always pushing the boundaries uh, of music. Oh. Like you said, whether it was Planet of the Apes, uh, you know, certainly, you know, in, in the 70s with stuff like The Omen, you know, by the time, you know, and obviously Star Trek Motion Picture is just a brilliant, brilliant score. And then, you know, by you get in the 80s and he's experimenting with, you know, electronics. He's at the forefront of that. Um, I mean, he was just a genius. And, uh, you know, he was never, you know, always pushing the envelope until he, you know, until he died. I mean, he was still writing stuff like Basic Instinct, you know, in, in the tail end of his career. So um, just and an amazing, really, amazing. Reach into one bag of tricks and keep pulling the same thing out. I mean, there are 
certain composers who shall not be named James Warner, who um, tend to reuse certain themes from movie to movie. And even when Jerry Goldsmith was doing different Star Trek films, um, you know, his motion picture uh, score, his score for um, Star Trek V, his score for First Contact, they are all beautiful and different in their own way, yeah. even though they all obviously have like the same- They're all related, they have the same DNA. Well, but, yeah. in Star Trek V, the best thing about that movie is the score. It's got a great degree. And it helps elevate the, elevate the film, you know, just because it's the music is so amazing great. Amazing score. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting because uh, music is really important in terms of what, may, you know, when we were doing Next Generation, the TV show, we were using an orchestra. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. It may not have been a 90 piece, but it was a big orchestra. And I think it's, one of the things that elevates that show. Absolutely. Like it's, it's a classical score that sounds great, makes it, if it was the late 80s, early 90s cheap synth score, mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. that show would not stand the test of time. Agreed. Because even now when you em emulate percussion and strings, it's still not as great as an orchestra, but, but boy, in the 80s, it was awful. And uh, yeah, I mean, that definitely elevates that show, having having an orchestra. It makes a huge difference. You couldn't get away with that kind of Mark Snow, kind of synthy kind of thing for because it needs the orchestra. And and uh, when you look at Ron Jones and Jay Chataway, I mean, that stuff's really terrific. It is. And that was one of the things with the Orville that was very important to Seth is that, and that's a 90 piece. I mean, the scoring sessions on that thing are a thing to behold. Yeah. Mm. Those fucking scores are huge. And they're great. John Debney, I mean, they're just fantastic. And he, you know, and it does, it does make it more cinematic. And I, I have to say, we haven't really talked about it, but my, my assistant specifically, when I told him we were doing First Contact, he said, you've got to tell Brandon how brilliant Cosmos is. And he was like the third person to mention that. Uh, people just are blown away. I mean, I haven't watched the new one yet. Uh, obviously, I love the first one you guys did. But, I mean, what a fantastic achievement uh, to bring that show back. I mean, especially in the world we live in now where people seem to not understand science and everyone thinks they're an epidemiologist. Uh, the fact that you went and sort of celebrate science is, is a phenomenal thing. And, uh, you know, and you directed so many and wrote them and traveled the globe. I mean, my DP on Pandora worked with you and had an amazing experience. And uh, I just think it's phenomenal. And, you know, here we are talking about all this, you know, fake science fiction. But, you know, what you've done with Cosmos is really amazing. And you should be really, all of you, Seth, obviously, and the whole team should be commended for what you've accomplished. Well, I appreciate that. And I hope people watch it. And it aired on Nat Geo and it's going to air again on Fox. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the fall, um, I don't, and I don't have a specific night and time, but it'll be in the prime time lineup in, on Fox, and will re-air again. And that's great. I hope people check it out. And that's you know, speaking of music, I, me and I remember the first season. Um, Seth was he he. I remember him calling me saying, "I think I got John Williams to do to to do the show," and I'm like. That doesn't sound possible, <laughs> but, uh, but he came, he got close. He got, he almost got him. Uh, I don't know what happened, but then he ended up getting Alan Silvestri and Alan Silvestri, 
you know, he wasn't cheap. And, but Seth was like, you've got to have a great score. And I remember being in the, the sound mix for the first episode. It wasn't until I heard that Sylvester music that I, I realized, oh, this is working. Mm-hmm. It's I, so funny because when I first fell in love with movie scores back in the 70s and was getting albums like, you know, all the Bond scores, obviously, the James Bond scores, the great James Bond scores, but also, um, uh, you know, like Star Wars and, and uh, uh, Cosmos was, a, was an album from the original yeah. series that yeah, I used that was... to love on LP. And, uh, well, ben you know, James, obviously... Of course, had done the Chariots of Fire soundtrack. Right. But Cosmos, the first Cosmos was before that, because it was the 70s. No, Cosmos was, was 1980. Was Cosmos was, is 1980. Okay, so it was, it was contemporary. It was before Blade Runner, but around the time of Chariots of Fire. Yes. Yeah. 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 Angelus was like super hot at the time. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's the score it's still good it still fits the movie like Tangerine Dream still fits Risky Business it's so yes. much part of it it's it's like you know, it wouldn't work without that right no um, totally not well you have to do it with intention right it just has to be a thing that is built into the into the DNA of the music and how the music comments on the piece like, I, you know, I'm doing something with that right now where it's finding that balance of how does the synth play with the actual instruments. And how does it have its own identity in the music um, relative to all of those other elements? But when it's just like the synth is pretending to be the string section or the horns. Also, is a movie being scored or is the music incidental? Right. And so much music I find to be just incidental, almost wallpaper. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, something that's been scored, and, you know. And I really liked that movie, Uncut Gems. Mm-hmm. That had a great. 80s synth score that really worked and it's funny i remember walking out of that movie hearing two two young guys probably guys in their 20s marveling at the score and how one of them was like i've, I've never heard it, anything like that heard anything like that before and i'm thinking uh you'll see that it, it's been around for a while yeah. <laughs> uh, you know it's it you mentioned risky business and it makes me sad to think that that movie could probably never get made today. And it's too bad because what Paul Brickman did, you know, people, people who don't know it, probably the, the, the Twitter outrage brigade would say, uh, Oh my God, that's, it's so demeaning towards everyone involved. I mean, it, it's such a great film and so brilliantly done. And when you have a, a real auteur and it's a shame because Paul Brickman did what that men don't leave and then never to be heard from he again. Yeah, he, he, he ankled in the parlance of our Only people. Only men do leave. Yeah, what? Paul Brickman leaves. He just, I don't know. I just, I, I think he did the second, or he did the second movie and he was done. You know, and and then, uh, and that was, and it's so odd. I mean, people talk, you know, obviously we all talk about, um, uh, uh, you know, Badlands, Terrence Malick, and, you know, obviously he came back and did a bunch of movies like Tree of Life, but, you know, I'd love to see Paul Brickman come back and do something. And Risky Business was so atmospheric. Yeah, you know, I, I again, that's another. I remember seeing that in the theater very vividly. Who's the U-boat yeah. captain? The U-boat commander. <laughs> U-boat commander. Right. Who's the U-boat commander? Um, but yeah, I look. I, I it got to be one of these things where, much like Khan, where people are still talking to Nick Meyer and Bob Salen for you know thirty years hence. Uh, you know, people you know want to talk to you guys about First Contact. 
I mean, it's a film that, you know, people just love and it's just got to be very gratifying for you to be involved yeah, with something I, like I that. Met, I met Nick Meyer one time, he came to my office and it was about a project he was developing and trying to see if it was something we could do together. It didn't work out, but I'm talk I'm asking him about Star Trek too. Like, you know, and, uh, and of course, time after time and his other great, yeah. but, uh, you know, it's, didn't think I'd still be talking about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Probably wish you weren't. <laughs> no, no, I'm really grateful. And, and it, it's, it's interesting that, uh, these movies, be, be, you know, for some, I'm sorry, I'm just seeing that somebody's calling me. Um, for a lot of people, these movies were seminal events, like the, like first contact, yeah. like really meant a lot uh, to a, a guy I'm working with who's in his early thirties. He was the line producer on Cosmos, mm -hmm. a guy named Joe Macucci. And uh, I mean, first contact was a seminal movie, movie for him. Like this was a really important movie in his life. And, um, and that's always nice to hear. And, it, and especially because it's, as you were saying earlier, it's a movie with good intentions. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I love that movie. I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb on this podcast and say, well, me, it's not out on a limb. It's that it's my second favorite Star Trek film. It is, it is the film that I find um, after Wrath of Khan, you know, the kind of the most watchable and in the sense that I can, I, I always kind of have um, the right emotional reactions in the in the right places, and that I appreciate. Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing Wrath of Khan too. That Mutara Nebula space—it's not even so much space battle, I guess you call it. But it stuck with me forever. Like I've emulated it many times on episodes. Like it's so good. And I think what you nailed too was the fact. It was the, the optimism at the heart of Star Trek. Even though it was the sort of quote-unquote post-nuclear horror and people were crawling out, it, 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 it tapped into what people love about Star Trek is that the future will be better, people will get along, people will come together in friendship, that the crew is a family um, and will you know, sacrifice anything for each other. That's what people love about Star Trek. I mean, it's, it's not rocket science. And yet... And and yet the move, but it, and yet that's not often a, a, a big part of the show. Like it's just, it's taken for granted. Right. Right. And it's, and it's, it's kind of like backstory and it was good. I think good to, to, to show how it came to be and why it meant something. Given the budgets that are being spent on contemporary Star Trek and how CGI and production values have allowed television to achieve a feature film look. Do you think there's a future in general for Star Trek movies or has television sort of co-opted what was once the Star Trek feature film? Say that again, Mark. Do you feel that because of technology that, you know, you look at episodes of Star Trek now, they could cost 15 to $17 million, right? That's more than con cost. Um, that, um, you know, technology, CGI has given them an ability to look like movies, right? Is there a future to the Star Trek movie franchise? I don't mean specifically JJ, but I mean, do you, having been someone who developed Star Trek movies in the past, who made Star Trek movies, do you feel that this is a viable franchise in terms of motion pictures going forward for someone, for anyone? I do. Um, 
I think it's, in my opinion, first and foremost, it's a television franchise. It, and it always will be. Um, but yeah, of course. I mean, J.J. Abrams found a way to kind of reinvent the wheel. And those movies are fun and exciting and, and have great scope and action. And um, I, I'm sure it will continue in some fashion. I don't see why it wouldn't. Um, but I personally, you know, it's just my opinion, the kinds of Star Trek stories that I like the most aren't action stories. They're, they're different kinds of stories because I don't really see the, the franchise as an action franchise. In fact, there was very little action. There was almost no action on Next Generation. And we couldn't really afford to do you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, <laughs> stories are, you know, they're, they're more, more intimate, I think. So when this quarantine is over, you're back into post-production on your movie and back in the shooting, the, the new season yeah. of Orville? Yeah, I don't have a, uh, yeah, the movie, I, I'm told it's gonna be out in October, Books of Blood. And um, yeah, we're about halfway done shooting the Orville. Uh, and and uh, it's worth noting, I don't know if we mentioned this, that Brandon directed it, major, you know, based on Clive Barker's classic horror uh, book series, Books of Blood. And uh, so that's got to be exciting for oh you. I mean, if I, I mean, going back to the 1986 or whenever I read those books, I never thought I'd be working with Clive Barker and directing a movie based on those stories is... Good Lord. Can we just do a whole other podcast about that? I, I didn't realize that was happening. That's like the coolest thing that like, I love those books and I love Clive Barker. That's awesome. Yeah, and what's cool, it's so interesting when conceiving the movie with Clive, um, he he wanted to talk about news stories. Like he's a little sick of those stories. Right. You know, they, right. 30, 30 years ago, 35 years ago or whatever it was. And uh, so the movie has one of one story from the books and two new ones. Um, and uh, it's pretty cool. Clive Barker was the second person I ever interviewed. I interviewed him about Hellraiser. The first was Daphne Zuniga for the short thing. So Clive was a great interview back in the day. Well, he's, he's like a brilliant guy. And he's fascinating to talk yeah. Yeah. Like I, with his permission, I've been, I recorded hours and hours of conversation between us developing the movie, which so often were just about everything. Yeah. It's going to be Truffaut Hitchcock. Well, Braga Barker. Yeah, <laughs> not really. And Decker. <laughs> I got to get Fred involved. Decker. He'll just have comments. I get Fred to, uh, no, but it, it really is like listening to him talk about horror and, because he doesn't consider himself to be a horror writer. He's like, I wrote those horror stories and gotten that, and that, that was it. Like, I did my horror. Right. Look at it. It's like, oh, yeah, he's been doing fantasy and other stuff. Like, he's really not a horror writer. Right? Cool, you know? But um, there's some really cool stuff in the new stuff, new Parker S stuff. In the movies. I just hope. But you know, people get pigeonholed. They do. do and one I thing successful and. And I think also, you know, 
he got a little pigeonholed with Hellraiser. Like mm. a Barker story isn't punk rock, cyber, psychosexual, cyber. Like most of his stories are nothing like Hellraiser. His, right. his stories are wildly diverse in their subjects and their tone. And it's one of the things about Books of Blood that's so mind-blowing is just how, do, how did he write all these volumes of stories all and publish them all at once? Right. They're all so different. Like The Hills, The Cities. Like, who the hell thinks of that story? Well, that's, that's the, that, if, I, if I'm lucky enough to do another Books of Blood movie, I, that, I've got to figure out a way to do that one. That's, oh, my God. So that's good. a really hard... No one's tried it. It's a hard movie to translate into, I mean, hard story. You know, like Lovecraft, some of these Barker stories, like you just, I can't describe it to you. You right. have to read it. And, and that's what, what they call uncanny, the uncanny story. And that's a sign to me as, of a truly great writer. If you just, you just, you, had li you have to read it to get into that mental state, you know? Right. That's one of those stories. No, that's so cool. Well, listen, great having you back to talk about First Contact. Uh, yeah. We didn't need to wait for an actual anniversary to celebrate it. So, um, Are, how but, many? Uh, you do these every week? Every Saturday, there's a new episode. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah. it's uh, who was it's last, a lot. Who was last week? La last week, uh, well, uh, I think this the week. Uh, it depends when this airs, but I mean who would have been the last one, but I know we did, uh, we, we talked to some novelists this week, we wrote a bunch of the Star Trek novels. Uh, your good friend, uh, I collaborator, Andre Bormanis was on recently, talking about science and Star Trek. Um, <laughs> right. One of the original series, uh, special effects artists was on recently, uh, the guy named Barry Mason, um, you know, but we've had everybody from Nick Meyer to Anson Mount to uh, Michael Dorn, who was uh, terrific and, uh, just uh, having 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 a lot of fun, so. Yeah, if I, I'm trying to get a hold of Scott Bakula, and I just I lost his information over the years. If I do get a hold of him, I'll I'll tell him he's got to do your show. Be great. We're trying to get all the Star Trek captains. I got to convince Bill, and uh, oh, you got to get you get a Scott. Too old. I mean, you know, he's 80 now, isn't he? Or is it almost 88, 90? 89, 89. We're never gonna get Avery though. Never. Never get Avery. Avery doesn't talk to anybody. It's, maybe maybe they'll come on and play piano and sing for us. Maybe maybe that's how we get. Get all the captains, man. That's that's a mandate. That would be uh, that, that would, would be pretty be amazing. My you know what my dream show is. I want Quentin Tarantino to come on and talk about Pretty Maids All in a Row, the Gene Roddenberry movie. Which if you haven't seen, you really need to see. What's it called? Pretty Maids All in a Row. It's kind of a softcore movie that Gene Roddenberry did in the early 70s yeah. and with Rock Hudson as a serial killing gym teacher who's killing a bunch of new bulk high school. And Gene Roddenberry wrote and produced it. And uh, uh, Tarantino calls it one of the 10 best films of all time. It's not that, but <laughs> man, it's, uh, it's, if you haven't seen it, you dig it the most. <laughs> wow. How did I miss that one? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, by I don't the know. Way, Tarantino would be a great guest to have on the show. He'd be a great guest to have on the show. He'd be we'll we'll right. try. Uh, you know, and I'd look at one point, it'd be great to get Rick. 
But, uh, you know, maybe when his book, if he finally finishes his book. Is he writing a book? Really? What? That's what I said. But, I mean, I don't know. If he ever finishes the book, maybe he, maybe, but I, I, we could do four or five shows with him. But, uh, oh. oh my God. Yeah, totally. He's just never talked. Yeah. I know. I know. I know. I mean, but, uh, he has stories from the early pioneering days of Next Gen that no, that nobody has. Right. Which are the best stories. Yeah. The early like that, days are, oh, that, cat, that documentary that Shatner did, Captain's. Uh, Chaos on the bridge. Chaos on the bridge, right? No. Yeah. Scratch the surface. Didn't Scratch. go. I mean, I just barely, want to, barely got it right. Barely. I mean, that's why. I mean, I. You know, our book in, in Fifty Year Mission. You know, we we go into that same era. And it's it's like, obviously, a much deeper dive. And even that, um, there's certain stories that we couldn't print for various reasons, or people would crazy, tell us on the record. Crazy stories from that time. Crazy stories, yeah, indeed. Well, that'll tease people. Well, listen, thanks again for joining yeah, thanks, us. And it's always good to have you on the show. And thank you, Ashley, uh, for joining us thanks, once Ashley. again. And uh, if you want to watch Inglorious Trexperts, you should download the Electric Now app, available at your uh, favorite app store. Uh, you can watch this on uh, iTunes or Roku or on your phone or iPad or any of our other electric podcasts including the rebel in the road the 430 movie and of course best movies never made with fred decker and uh uh we want to thank bill ritter who takes these zoom feeds makes us sound so good our research uh production coordinator zach raggetts and of course our research consultant uh peter holmstrom so until next saturday keep on trekking and gloriously of course This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.